Man, I'm thankful for them on this first Sunday of 2014. Who's thankful for the parking team? Yeah, it's freezing out there. I walked by and I was like, I, I, would, I would totally drive that golf cart for you, but I got to preach. So, sorry, you know, good luck with that. Gave him a little pound it and on I went and got in here where it's nice and warm. Thank you guys out there. Hey, uh, Tuesday night, how many people stayed up to see the ball drop? A lot of you. Man, I was in bed by 10 o'clock. I'm way more mature than all of you. It's crazy. <laughs> crazy. How about New Year's resolutions? How many people have had a chance to think through some things, make some? Yeah, a good number of you, less, less than who stayed up and watched the ball and that craziness. Did anyone actually go into New York? Did anyone? see a couple of hands back there. That is insanity, 100%. You know, New Year's is a really cool thing for us. You know, what it, what it does is it kind of builds into our calendar this time of the year where we can, we can take a step back, we can put on the wide-angle lens, we can look down at what's going on in our lives and in our hearts from a 30,000-foot level. It allows us to do some self-evaluation that we just get so busy throughout the year that we don't necessarily tend to do otherwise. And so it, it builds into our calendar this pause as everyone's talking about what's your new year going to be like or, or what do you want to change in 2014. And so it provides us that. And I so appreciate that uh, about New Year's. And, and I, I try to do this myself. You know, I spent probably between an hour and two hours reading through my journal from the past year and looking through some photos, just trying to remember all that happened over the last 12 months. You know, it's funny, as, as I'm doing that, I'm reading these, these things I was praying about back in February and, and just seeing how God had answered those prayers and I had just completely forgot about them. You know, it's amazing all that happens in the course of 12 months. You know, Brittany and I did this as well. We went out New Year's Eve and just had dinner and just talked about, you know, what were some of the, some of the really cool things that happened in 2013? Where do we see God's grace really show up when we needed it most? What were some of the hard times and what, what were some of the great times? And we began to just dream about 2014 a little bit and just say, what, what do we really want God to do? What are the things that we're going to be intentional about praying about for this year? And if you've had a chance to to think through that, sharing that with someone else can be really good just for accountability. For someone, you know, six weeks from now to be able to come and say, hey, how's that going for you? How's that going? It, it builds relationship and builds community, and I would encourage you to do that. I'll be honest, though. My, my premise this morning that I'm operating under is that even if we have some really good resolutions, some things that God has put on our heart, maybe it's, it's getting out of credit card debt, or maybe you want to go, go back to school, or you're, you're feeling like God is asking you to take some sort of risk, and that's your goal for this year. Those are good things and God-honoring, but, but what I think for me and for you, and the thing I'm going to be praying about, again, for me and for you, is that our resolution and the thing that we look back at the end of this year and say that 2014 was a year in which we walked closer with Jesus than we had before. Let's pray together. Jesus, we love you. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're here among us. We need you this morning. We declare that together. And so as we open up your word, we pray that you would, you would show us things that we've not seen before. We pray that you would awaken in us, God, just renewed passion for you, increased desire for you as we talk about some things that we might be going after in the next year. Again, we thank you that you've been with us in the difficult moments of the past year and in the great moments of the past year. You were the constant. You were with us through it all. And so we thank you for that. It's your son's name we pray. 
Amen. Amen. So we're going to be in Genesis 25 this morning. If you've got your Bibles, you can make your way there. Uh, if you don't have them, that's okay. We'll put them up in the screen in just a minute. Picking it up in verses 29, those six, next six verses chronicle a little story that goes on between two brothers. And these are the grandsons of Abraham. Their names are Jacob and Esau, and they're twin brothers. And Esau was the older of the two twins, and it says he was a man of the field, a hunter. And it talks about how he would be a person who would get game, and, and the expectation would be that he would bring it back and whatnot. And then you see Jacob, his younger brother, describes him as a, a quiet man who dwelt among the tents. And so very different, the two of these guys, very different. And as the oldest, Esau had possession of what was called a birthright. And that word doesn't mean a whole lot to us anymore. Uh, we don't really use that, but back then it was terribly important. The birthright basically allowed you as the oldest son to get a double portion of whatever was doled out when the father passed away. And so you're talking, you're talking the flock, right, the, the buildings, the land that you own, that's how wealth was measured back then. Uh, you get a double portion than anyone else of those things. You also, you know, as people haven't, in your family haven't gotten married yet, you become the authority figure in their lives, and so your younger brothers and sisters, you really take this position of authority that the father had had in their lives. And so it wasn't something to be taken lightly back then. As you can imagine, it was very important if you had that, and people cherished it and really cared about it. And so that's what we're talking about here. In Genesis chapter 25, picking it up in verse 29, you can read along with me on the screen. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he, meaning Esau, swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Let's be honest, this is not one of Esau's finest moments. As he looks back on his life, this was an event that dramatically changed the course of his life. His future was forever altered because of this seemingly small decision in that moment. The reason I want to look at this today is because I think, I think some of the factors that drove him to make what was a terrible decision are some of the same things that still drive us in our decisions that are less than stellar that we've made over the last year. Let me just list them, list them for you. The three things I think that really pop out are this. It's anxiety. It's a measure of self-reliance. And it's immediacy. I think you and I know a bit of what it's like to be dominated by anxiety. To have that ball in your stomach begin to just kind of get tighter and tighter until you feel like you might explode. And any time, as a general rule in life, any time you're making decisions in that position where you're feeling anxious, it very rarely ends up going well. I was, I was thinking about this, you know, even, even this week, and, and Brittany and I were talking about it, and I was thinking back to when we were engaged. We, we lived up in Massachusetts, and we didn't know any people from Connecticut. For the record, you guys are all a little weird, which we have since learned, but we learned that since. So I wouldn't have asked you for your opinion anyways, because things aren't... No, just kidding. So we're living in Massachusetts, and we're trying to find a place to live. 
but we don't know anything about Connecticut. And so, you know, we're doing the Craigslist thing, looking for apartments. And because of our schedules, we don't really have a whole time, a lot of time to, to come down and, and look for things. And so the weeks turn into months, and the months turn into six months. And suddenly we're about two weeks, two months out from getting married, and we've got no place to live. And I'm starting to kind of feel the weight of this. You know, as the husband, I'm feeling like I need to provide for my wife. I need to put a roof over her head. And so we go and look at this little condo. And, you know, we would looked at a few places by then, and it was okay. You know, but the next day, I, I just wasn't feeling too good about it. And I didn't have a, a piece in, in my gut about it. Didn't feel like God was releasing us to do it. And so I called her up from work and said, I don't want to buy that condo. And she said, okay, you know, that's fine. And then literally it was like a day later as I began to just feel anxious about not having a place to live that I called her back and was like, no, you know, I think we should buy it. I think we should buy it. You know, it turns out to be one of the worst decisions we had ever made because I allowed anxiety to drive me into a decision that wasn't from God and wasn't what he had for us. It's so easy to see this as we look at Esau as well. You can almost, you can hear the angst in his voice when his brother tries to deal him the meal. He says, look, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? It's not going to do me any good, Jacob, if I'm dead. So I might as well do this because at least I'll live for another day. It sounds kind of dramatic. And we don't know if maybe he was being a little dramatic. I mean, the next chapter does tell us that there was a famine in the land. And so there's a real possibility that he was actually a little bit worried, as though he might be in trouble. His anxious heart is one of the contributing factors to him making a decision that he regretted. Secondly, Esau had a self-reliant heart. A man who was used to being out on his own, hunting and, and catching his own food, looking out for number one. You know, I imagine he was pretty good at providing for himself. He was used to taking care of himself and didn't need help from others. And so he comes to this moment of need. And you'll notice what the, what the text doesn't say is this humble moment where Esau says to his brother, listen, I, I'm really in trouble. Would you please help me? It doesn't record him stopping and, and saying, Father, God, I know that you provide for us. I know you love me, and so I'm going to trust that you're going to provide in this moment. Instead, we see him take matters into his own hands rather than choosing to trust God in that moment. And those two things, I don't know about you, but for me, they're very closely linked. Oftentimes when I see one, the other, the other is right there. So when you begin to feel anxious about things, th there's a measure of self-reliance that begins to build up in your heart because you think, I've got to take care of this right now. I don't have time to be patient with God and allow him to meet this need for me. I've got to own this on my own. And it seems like for, for as much anxiety and, and self-reliance, there's a lack of trust. And those two things seem to kind of go hand in hand on a scale. Because the more we choose to trust God, the more we're able to give our cares and our concerns over to Him. And the anxiety begins to melt in our heart. And we say, I'll wait for God to come through. I don't need to do this on my own. And in that moment, Esau, Esau lost sight of that. He lost sight of what it meant to trust God. And he had seen in his family just some of the devastating consequences of making decisions when our heart is in this place. You might remember the story of his grandfather, Abraham. God had come to him and said, I'm going to make you a nation. Descendants as numerous as the stars. And, and so it's this incredible promise. 
And you can imagine, as the years began to tick by, of Abraham and his wife Sarah and, and no child came, they began to think, I, I, you know, I'm not sure God really is going to come through for us. I'm not sure he's going to provide this for us. And so they take matters into his own hands. Abraham wants an heir, and so he has a son with his wife's servant. And it, it has all these terrible fallouts because he, he didn't wait on God. He didn't trust him, so he took matters into his own hands. And the third thing I see here is that Esau chooses the immediate over the enduring. He was convinced that the hunger he felt in that immediate moment was more important than the incredible gift he had as the oldest son and the birthright that he possessed. And again, we don't know whether or not he was literally on the brink of dying. Now, I have a hard time believing his brother was going to sit there spooning stew to himself as, you know, his older brother falls into a hunger coma. You know, so chances are he probably wasn't about to die. But the immediate need was so great and felt so great that he chose the immediate over what lasts and would last for him. You know, I was thinking about this. Isn't, isn't this just like you and I? This is nothing new, this trap that Satan likes to set for us. He tries to take our eyes off of what matters, of, of what's eternal. And he puts them on the immediate. And he says, don't worry about what, what's coming down the road. Go after this thing. It begins to tempt us. And we all know what that feels like. To feel that pull towards the thing in the immediate. In the back of our minds we're saying, you know what? I'm a follower of Jesus. I know that thing doesn't line up with with." God's call on my life, and yet, for some reason, I feel so pulled towards it. And sometimes Satan will get us to fall into it, and then he'll pull that terrible bait and switch on us that we, we know so well, where he lures us into something, and then we fall to it, and then what happens? We feel that regret and that shame that he's just, he's just kind of heaping on us in that moment. And we saw it in the story of Adam and Eve. We see, her, see it here in Jacob and Esau, and we know it all too well from our own lives as well. You know, I, I got a really, a really good picture of this in a more benign way not too long ago. Uh, one of the ladies here at the church had put on an event for a few of the women, and my wife was invited. And so it was probably a month, maybe six weeks ago. And so she came back and had this, this bag of goodies, and there was, you know, some girly stuff in there that I kind of ignored. But, but the crowning jewel piece were these two, I mean, they were like size of my hand, pieces of fudge. I mean... They were, they were chunks, all right? And so she just kind of takes them out, puts them on the counter. And I just, I don't need to ask for those. Whenever she, She's going to offer me some. That, that's why I thought to myself, I'm going to get me some of that. And so a week goes by and still sitting there on the counter. And I'm like, it's okay, I'm patient. I am patient. About three days after I was patient, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help with the clutter in the kitchen. You know, the fudge is in the way and it's really creating a problem. So I'm going to take care of that. So I went over and I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to help. I'm going to serve my wife. She's probably saying, you know, I don't want to eat that. You know, I'm going to help. So, so I go over and I grab it. And it's wrapped in these, these, these plastic pieces. And I look at the tag and it says, sense of fall. And I thought, that's nice. That's nice. It's probably cinnamon fudge, perhaps. Maybe it's pumpkin. I don't really know. So I, I said, again, I'm, I'm going to serve her. I'm going to be good. So, so I'm going to help her. I'm going to eat it. So I go unwrap the whole thing, and I take this gigantic bite. I get about two glorious bites in when I realize that it's not actually fudge. So I go running to the bathroom doing everything I can to get this soap 
out of my mouth as quickly as possible, but I've now ground it into my molars. And what's evident is that the sense of fall is moldy, rotting leaves. That was the sense of fall that this soap was supposed to do. And so I go to get the mouthwash because things are not going well. I'm dry heaving. And I'm like, oh, I left five drops in this. And I'm like, ah, nothing. Nothing will do it. I began to think, man, isn't that exactly what Satan tries us to get us to do? Isn't it? I mean, he puts something that looks so sweet in front of us. And we give into it, we give into the temptation only to have it turn on us. And Esau saw this. We know there was just regret that came as a result of this decision. And so just like he did with Adam and Eve, just like he seeks to do with you and I, he's trying to get our minds off of the immediate, off of what lasts and onto the immediate. And so as we look at our 2014 together, I mean, we ask the question, why, why does this really matter? Why does it matter how, how Satan tempted a guy named Esau back in the day? Again, I think as we look at our 2013 and we begin to dream about our 2014, these things were a part in some measure of our life in that year. And if you're anything like me, you know, we want to move away from that. Because you know what the flip side of anxiety is? It's peace. You know what the flip side of self-reliance is? It's trust. You know, the flip side of the immediate is the everlasting. And so if you'll begin to dream with me for just a moment, imagine if our 2014 was not marked by those things, but was marked by increased peace with God, was marked by increased trust in Him, and was marked by increased investment in his kingdom, and in the things that last. So the question for us is this. How do we go about making that a reality? We know, we know far too well that sitting and trying to say, you know what, this January 5th, I want that to be better for me in 2014. It doesn't come from inherently trying harder. Getting our lives to more accurately represent the heart of Christ in those areas comes as a byproduct of us walking with him on a more regular and steady basis. So if we're going to say today, you know, I want my next year to be marked by peace and trust and eternal investment, again, that happens as a byproduct of our pursuit of Christ. And we get those things when we get Christ. We don't get those things on their own. We've seen far too often we don't get those things out of our human flesh. They come as we learn who God is, as we love him in greater and increasing measure, and we trust him more. I believe uh, that God does absolutely still speak through the scriptures. I believe that his word is one of the ways he speaks to us. But I also believe that because we have the Holy Spirit living in us, that God speaks to us. And I don't know about you, but... I want to hear that voice better. I mean, I want to be able to hear God's voice just more readily and, and easier. And so I've just been working on that lately. And one of the things I've been doing is, is I'm just sitting down with my Bible closed in the morning and just saying, God, where would you want me to read this morning? 
Now, I got nothing against reading plans. I've used them, like them. I'll use them again in the past. But, but I'm trying to hear God's voice better. And this is one of the ways I want to do it. So I say, God, where do you want me to read? And it's been really cool. There's been some points where it really felt like, you know, I heard, I heard well and, and was pointed to a place that was spot on for that day. And there have been times where I definitely did not hear well. And the other day, I, I felt like God was maybe leading me to Ezekiel 26. And you know what's in Ezekiel 26. So you'll realize that, you know, there wasn't much there. I, I just, I personally didn't know what was in Ezekiel 26. And so I get there, and it's, it's kind of this story about two nations warring. And I kind of got to the end of it, and I said, I think I got that one wrong, God. I don't think that was what, and I noticed that it was just a couple chapters earlier, one of my favorite books, the, the book of Isaiah was right there. And so I said, let me, let me check on Isaiah 26. Maybe I just got the prophet wrong. You know, let me... Let me go see. And so I flip over to Isaiah 26. And I see that sometime in the past I had highlighted verses 3 and 4. And I'd been thinking about this stuff, about Esau and these decisions. And so these words leap off the page. Let me read them to you. It says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Let me, let me read that again for you. Would, you. would you picture yourself as the, the him or the her in that moment? So for me, I would, I would say, you keep Mike. You would say, insert your name. You keep him in perfect peace. Just imagine this. Imagine this was talking about you. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Perfect peace. Really the arch nemesis of anxiety. It talks about trust, the antithesis of self-reliance. And it talks about what is forever and everlasting. The contrast to our short-sightedness. Trian Edwards was a 19th century theologian. And he wrote this about this topic for us. He says, Anxiety is the rust of life, destroying its brightness and weakening its power. A childlike and abiding trust in providence is its best preventative and remedy. You know, in those two verses from Isaiah, there, there's a phrase there that really unlocks this whole thing for us. And he wrote, whose mind is stayed on you. And that could also be translated dependent or fixed. And it describes a person, as you can tell, who, who is confident in God. And that confidence in God comes not just from learning about him, but from getting to know him. A mind becomes fixed on him when we begin to realize that he loves us. And that we are sons and daughters who have been adopted and so we just begin to think on that and we pour back gratitude and we say, God, thank you so much for that. And the perfect peace and the trust and the everlasting that Isaiah is describing is a byproduct of what happens when our mind becomes ever increasingly filled with Jesus Christ. And I think if we were to go around the room and say, lift up your hand if, if you're completely satisfied with your relationship with God. I, I don't think there would be a ton of hands. And that's not, that's not necessarily, you know, to condemn us. I think that's because 
for most of us, we realize that at all points in our spiritual journey, there is more of God to be had. So whether we're just starting to take some few steps towards him or we walked with him for 40 years, we know that there's more of him to be had. And so if we know that and we're at the start of a new year, what if we said this year is the year that I'm going after that to get more of that? The year that we say, you know what? Jesus, if there's, if there's more of you, if there's deeper levels of intimacy with you, then this is going to be the year that I want to go after that. Because I want more of you. I want more of you. What are we going to do with this fresh start that God has placed before us? You know, in 1960, there was a, a meteorologist at, the MIT, at MIT. His name was Edward Lorenz. And he made this accidental discovery while he was trying to develop a computer program that would simulate and predict weather patterns. And, and there was a day he was in a hurry, and so he rounded his number just to the nearest thousandth. And so the number was like .506127, and, and he just left those, those three numbers off, the last three. Thinking it was small enough to be inconsequential, he left the lab only to come back several hours later and see that his, his simulation had changed dramatically. And what he introduced to the scientific community that day what he learned and what he would later introduce was called the butterfly effect. Because he sat down and, and calculated those three numbers he left off in terms of weather were equivalent to about the puff of a butterfly wing. And what he saw in this simulation was that a butterfly wing's flap could conceivably change the weather a thousand miles away by changing wind patterns and currents. And what's true in science is true in life. Small changes that you and I decide to make right now can have dramatic impact on our lives down the road. So can I just, I just challenge you just briefly to consider this. I wonder if you'll stop sometime in the next few days and, and get alone with God, get away from the computer and the noise, the cell phones, all the things that create noise for us. And just ask God, what do you have for me in 2014? God, what are some of the ways I might be able to grow? What are the things that you would, you would challenge me to, some risks you might ask me to take? And this really does cover the whole spectrum. If you're here and you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus yet, can I just say, man, maybe 2014 would be the year that you say, I'm going to determine what I believe. If really we're talking about eternity hanging in the balance, then this year I'm going to do my research and ask my questions. And 12 months from now, I'm going to know where I stand, one way or the other. Because to be ambiguous about my eternity is foolish. Maybe you've been a Christian for some time, and if you're honest, your relationship with him has begun to grow stale. And if you're really honest, you know that that doesn't even necessarily bother you. And can I just say, maybe, maybe you would take a few quiet minutes where you can hear the alarm bells that the Holy Spirit is ringing as he's saying, I, I want your heart. Don't you know what I have for you? And you're missing it with every day that goes by. And we don't have relationship. And he's calling you back into that relationship that has that, that passion and excitement that you knew one time. But that's many days behind you. 
Or maybe, maybe you would say, my relationship with God, if I'm honest, is, is going well. And you would say, God, do you have any things in, in 2014 for me? Maybe God wants you to be a mentor. He wants you to disciple someone and help them grow in their faith. I just wonder if, if we don't ask the question, are we missing this chance that God has put in front of us to check in and get a checkup? I, I was thinking about this last night, this idea of a butterfly effect. What an incredible... What an incredible thing God has put in front of us as a church in 2014. I mean, what would the butterfly effect be if, if we as a, a people of 1,500, 1,000, 2,000, however many people are here, if we all together took a step towards Jesus? What if we did that as a church? I began to think of Fairfield, and you, you think a butterfly flap. Man, what if our church moved in that direction? What would it look like 40 years from now? We can't possibly know. But we know that when we step out into what God calls us to, He meets us there. And so we've got this incredible chance with this new building getting finished to impact our neighbors and our town. What could the effect be if we as a church stepped into that together? And that'll happen when you and I and you and you step into that individually. That's when that'll happen for us as a body. Let's pray together. So God, as we start this year, I just pray that again, we would take the chance to check in with you if we've not done so already and just say, what do you have for me? That we would look back on our previous year and say, what, what were my areas of weakness? Where do I want to grow? Because God, we know, we know when we're honest that you're worth it. We know that the, the measures of effort that we pour into growing with you, God, we know it's worth it. It's just so easy for us to forget. So would you forgive us, God, for forgetting so easily and so often. Your word promises, God, that you meet us and you forgive. So we say thanks, God, and ask you for a fresh start right now as we tune our hearts back into you again and dream God-sized dreams for our next year. In your name we pray. Amen.